Okay, welcome back. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 26. We'll see how far we get today, the whole chapter 66 verses, but it is the story, of course, of the crucifixion of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 27, the words will be up here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on uh, the table right back behind that pole if you don't have one with you. We're reading from the New King James Version. The Word of God reads as follows. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, excuse me, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this very day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him, Not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, <clears throat> do you want me, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? Excuse me, who was called Christ. For he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. And as we consider the things here this morning in this passage of Scripture, would you be our teacher? Would you guide us through this? Would you bring to us the things that we need to know, that we need to hear, that we need to understand? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in Passion Week, and we're now on the day that is actually Thursday in that week. 
and uh, just to reset some things for you, uh, the Jewish calendar, the Jewish day, was from sundown to sundown. So on Wednesday at 6 p.m., it became Thursday. So in our world, of course, it's midnight at 12.01, it becomes the next day. And so in their world, it was 6 p.m., basically, it was sundown uh, when the next day arrived. So on Wednesday evening at uh, sundown at roughly 6 p.m. began Thursday. So we're still in Thursday, except that we, in the, the end of the last chapter that we just went through, Jesus, of course, was taken through uh, two or three illegal trials at night because uh, no trial could be conducted at night. And we went over some of those things last week. Uh, most of the Jewish law was thrown out the window because they hated Jesus so much and they wanted to convict him. So now we're at morning time. And Jesus has been brought to uh, Pontius Pilate. And so verse 1, when the morning came and all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. You see, when Rome came in and took over uh, Jerusalem, when, when, it, when they took over Israel, they took away all civil authority. The civil authority now rested with Israel and of course, prior, excuse me, with uh, Rome, but prior to Rome coming in, Israel had their own rule and authority, and it was mostly run through the temple. It was a religious authority, but they were not able to execute someone. They weren't able to, uh, to take someone to task uh, through the justice system, so they could run a, a prisoner or, a, you know, a suspect through their a judicial system, but ultimately they had to take it to a Roman court system to get anything done. So at this point, they're now taking Jesus to Pilate um, with their trumped up charges. And remember, as we went through this last week, and you can just go back and read this if you missed it or if you don't recall, uh, they, they went out and did what they could to find false witnesses to come in to bring those charges, those accusations against Jesus. But the interesting thing is, Rome was not concerned with religious charges. They were only concerned with charges that actually broke the law and threatened the public. So uh, these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and whatnot, they had to come up with a way to get Rome's attention. So as we go through this today, we'll see their scheming and their conniving on how they tried to get the attention of Rome to convict Jesus and to ultimately convict him to death. We have a little side note here in verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. (coughs) So Judas had sort of had a a moment of remorse, you know, thinking about what he had done. Um, Judas did not repent. He did not return to the Lord. He was just sorry for what he did. And as we, you know, we could take a whole study and just talk about repentance and sorrow. You know, sometimes we are sorry when we get caught for something, when we're found out. And Judas sort of had this moment of realizing that he had uh, betrayed innocent blood, as we're told here. But in that moment, Judas did not repent. He didn't return to the Lord. And there's a great lesson for us here as we think of Judas and also as we think of other people in the Bible who didn't repent. You know, Ananias and Sapphira comes to mind in um, Acts chapter 5. But when we become aware of our sin, we need to repent. And the word repent means to change our mind and our heart attitude toward what we're doing. The conviction of the Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. If we become sorrowful about something, but we don't repent, well, where we usually go at that point is is to condemnation. And surely all of us at some point in our lives have felt condemnation. But know this, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you sense or feel condemnation, it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's coming from the enemy. It's coming from Satan himself. Conviction leads us to righteousness. Conviction is about restoration. Conviction is not about punishment. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to lead us back to, our, to restore our relationship with God. And Judas 
here had a moment of sorrow. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver and said, you know, I don't want this anymore. I don't want any part of it. And in verse 4, it says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There's something interesting here that, honestly, I don't understand because in the original language, and I looked this up in both uh, sets of manuscripts from which we get our Bibles translated. Uh, The King James, New King James, is translated from a text, and if you have one in the front of your Bible, it tells you it came from the majority text or uh, the Textus Receptus line of documents. And if you have any other Bible, NIV, NASB, ESV, you name it, all the others come from a a branch of documents called the Codex Sinaiticus. So these are the names that the scholars have given to the Greek manuscripts. But the interesting thing is, the point of mentioning this, is in both branches of text from which we are translated, uh, from which our Bibles are translated, it actually reads, and I'll read it to you this way, uh, Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood. There is a definite article in there that for some reason it is not translated. Now, I have sinned by betraying the or the innocent blood. There's only one person about which that could be said, and it is Jesus. So I wrote it in here for myself. You might want to write it in your Bible, but feel free to go check that out and look it up. That article is there, but it is not translated. It is sort of implied in English, and I think this is one of the places where our English rules do not serve as well. I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, hey, Judas, that's your problem, man. You have a little guilt. Amen. Don't put your guilt on us. You go deal with your guilt. That's your problem. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and he hanged himself. Now, Judas's sorrow, because it was not the conviction of the Spirit, it was his own sorrow, and he didn't respond to the Spirit. He responded in the flesh. He allowed his sorrow to lead him to a place of despair and ultimately of committing suicide. I want to say this about that because we don't often come to these kinds of topics in the scriptures. We often, and I've heard this many times from people who have just gone into deep depression or they're struggling with something in their life, and they go to a dark place and they go into deep, extreme sadness. And I've spoken with a number of Christians who, you know, when they sit and they're willing to be honest and talk, have contemplated suicide. And let me tell you this morning, first of all, that's not of the Lord. That's never of the Lord. That's the devil speaking to you. That is not the Holy Spirit. Second of all, uh, get help. Go to a brother or a sister in Christ. You know, let someone know that you're hurting. There's no shame in, in hurting and struggling. The shame is in not bringing someone in and saying, help me, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how to deal with it. But, but don't go to that dark place. Don't, please don't go there. You know, reach out, call for help. Judas, of course, responded and reacted in the flesh, and he carried it, carried it out to what he thought was the logical conclusion, which was, the only way I can deal with what I've done is to commit suicide. And so he did. But I would like to say to you this morning, please do not, if you're considering that. The conviction of the Spirit is to bring us back to Christ. And, I, you know, I think it's just a, a, a trick of the devil to tell us as believers, if we are struggling with some sort of sin in our lives, and it can be anything, I could name a whole list of ugly, grievous sins here this morning, but if you're struggling with sin in your life, pray, but go find someone, a pastor, a brother or a sister who's more mature than you, and talk to them and say, look, would you become my pray partner? Would, prayer partner, would you help me? And we are here as the body of Christ to do this. This is one of the reasons why the church exists, so that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can come alongside one another. No one is here to condemn you because you're struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. The problem is we just hide it, and we don't want other people to know that we're struggling with it. The shame is in not dealing with it not in having struggles. We all have struggles. 
And I praise God when we can have honest conversations about these things and talk to one another. And I pray by God's Spirit today that if you're struggling with anything, that you can find someone either here in this room or another believing friend or myself or Pastor Mitch or someone who can come alongside and help you if you are having some kind of struggle. So uh, he threw down the silver in the temple. They collected it. They said, we can't put it into the treasury because it's blood money. They uh, consulted together. They bought what was called the potter's field to bury strangers in. And in in that day, that was part of their response as sort of a public cemetery. When people died, a place to put them. They provided that through the temple treasury. And therefore, uh, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Uh, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they gave the children of Israel, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The interesting thing is you look up that passage of Scripture, and you probably have it in your margin there. See where verse 7. It says... Somewhere there, um, actually, I don't see it here, but maybe I looked it up somewhere else. Oh, there it is, verse 9, excuse me. Um, yeah, it says Zechariah, but of course he references Jeremiah here. So people kind of wonder, is this a contradiction in the Bible? It says here what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, but the reference, and if you go read it, that it is indeed in the book of Zechariah. The interesting thing is, and these are just things that we kind of miss from our understanding of how things were done back uh, in the days before we had all of the organization that we have today. Uh, Of course, the the scribes uh, were the copyists. They were the curators of the original texts of the scriptures. And so often, uh, scriptures, rather than being an individual role of each book, you know, the larger books like Isaiah or whatever might have had their own scroll, but a lot of the books were in collections as a scroll. And so they would understand, if I grab this scroll, this scroll has the following texts in it. And they might say, in this case, the scroll of Jeremiah. And there are some scholars who say that in the earlier days of the manuscripts, that the scroll of Jeremiah also contained the scroll of Zechariah. And thus, that would be the way they would refer to it, the scroll of of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah contained uh, the writings also of Zechariah. So you can look into that. I thought that was, to me, that was interesting and fascinating just to to think about that and to look into what others had to say about it. So uh, again, I, I don't think it's a contradiction in the scriptures. I believe we can have complete trust and faith in the word of God. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, uh, and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? So the governor is now trying to understand what is the actual charge or charges by which they've brought him before me, because they're asking the governor to sit in judgment of this prisoner and to declare something about him, and their, their ask is... Uh, He's an evil man, he's defied our law, and we want to put him to death. We want to crucify him. So the only thing out of the whole list of charges that they had against him that could possibly interest Rome was that he was saying that he was a king. In other words, he was an insurrectionist. He was someone who was a threat to the rule of Rome. So after, out of all the things that they brought before uh, Pontius Pilate, The only one he zeroed in on is, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Makes us think, of course, of Isaiah 53, where Jesus, as the Lamb of God, stood before his accusers. And it said, he uttered not a word. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed (coughs) to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, 
we believe Pilate probably had in his mind that surely they'll say Jesus because Barabbas was a criminal. He had so many charges against him and they were well known. Uh, you know, people surely wouldn't want this guy freed and walking on their streets. He had been put away because he was a very bad man. And he knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy, uh, speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, meaning Jesus, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Interesting, isn't it? The way the Lord will allow us to be warned about something. And so he spoke to Pilate's wife in a dream, and I would love to know what was the content of that dream, right? But here he says, I, she says, I've suffered many things in, today in a dream because of him. You know, let this guy go, stay away from him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So now because Pilate's opened the door to, to allow the crowds to adjudicate against Jesus, and they began to shout out because the scribes and the Pharisees had basically put plants in the crowd and had asked the people, ask for Barabbas when he, he does his customary thing, when he offers us, you know, should I release someone? Now let me also remind you and draw your attention to that just four days earlier, on the day of the triumphal entry on Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, that was the day Jesus had ridden in to Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives on the donkey. And what did the people, what did the crowd, what did the multitude say on that day? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they declared the praises and the excellencies of Jesus himself. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Four days earlier, they were calling him the Messiah. They were calling him the blessed one. Now these same people have been riled up and fed uh, you know, lies and said, ask for Barabbas. In four days, Jesus had fallen from grace in their eyes. And a lot of it had to do with the religious leaders telling them, this guy, Jesus, is a very bad man. He's worse than Barabbas. And it is, isn't it interesting how this whole thing got turned around in four days? through misinformation. So be careful what you listen to, right? Be careful what news source you listen to. How powerful is misinformation and gossip? And in four days, they've turned the entire city upside down and convinced everyone that Jesus was the guy who should be put to death, not Barabbas, who was a well-known, documented criminal. So the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who was called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. At that moment, this is the fulcrum. This is the turning point. And in verse 23, then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? What is the charge? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, now the Jewish rulers, excuse me, the religious, the Roman rulers feared a couple of things. One is, you know, if Jesus was de declaring himself to be a king, that there could be an uprising, that there could be an insurrection, you know, against Rome and against Rome's control and rule. But the other thing is, they were graded, they were evaluated, they were measured as, as Roman procurators or regional governors upon keeping the peace. And, and the idea was this, if you can't keep the peace in some little podunk Jewish town, we'll send someone who can. So at this moment, when this tumult began to arise, he feared what might happen. And so he said, hey, I'm just going to give the people what they want because I don't want any trouble. I don't want anything getting back to Rome that might tarnish my record. So now you see, not only have, have the people been turned, but now the, the ruler, the governor, is responding out of personal concern. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, verse 24, but rather that a tumult was rising, 
He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, partially heeding what his wife had said. You see to it. It's not my problem. His blood be on your head. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Hey, we'll take it. But yet they didn't know what they were saying, did they? Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on on him and led him away to be crucified. So Jesus obviously is innocent. Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God. And Jesus had been presented on that, that day as he came into Jerusalem as the Messiah. But then as we go through the week, during the week of the Passover, the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed for each family or for each group of people would be presented to the priest in the temple. And as the Lamb would be presented, that Lamb would be inspected. And there would be nothing found uh, on that Lamb. There could be no blemish. There could be no physical defect in that Lamb. Jesus has gone through the presentation as the Lamb of God. Remember all the way back at the beginning of his ministry when he came to be baptized, what did John the baptizer say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there was a a part in the process in the Old Testament when the lamb or the goat, whatever was brought to be sacrificed, uh, that, that lamb would be brought and uh, they would bring a lamb and sometimes a goat, and then the lamb would be dr- killed and, and put on the altar and dressed. But a goat would be brought, and when that goat was brought, the priest would lay his hand on the head of the goat. And in that moment, there was a symbolizing of the transference of sins, thus the term scapegoat. And as he put his hand on the head of the goat and transferred the sins of the people... Uh, onto the goat, they would, they would then turn and basically slap the goat on the behind and send him out into the wilderness. So as the goat would depart, the sins would travel with the goat out into the wilderness. Then the atonement for the sins would come through the blood of the innocent lamb that was slaughtered on the altar. And so here we have this being enacted, uh, uh, reacted or rather acted out as a parable in how Jesus has been tried. And what is happening to him. And so they are preparing him for death. I would commend to you again. We don't have time this morning to go through and to reread Isaiah chapter 53. But Isaiah chapter 53 and a portion of Isaiah chapter 50. They speak of the harsh and the violent treatment that comes upon our Lord Jesus Christ. As he goes through these trials. And a part of this treatment is the wrath of God being laid upon the Son of God. And so when you read Isaiah 53, and then you read it beside what happens as Jesus is being led to the cross, you begin to see the parallels where the sins of the world are being laid upon the Son of God. So now Jesus is being led away to be crucified in verse 31. Verse 32, now as they came out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross of Jesus. You know, in just a a few weeks in uh, April, we're coming up again to Easter. Uh, So we'll be looking at Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. And so we'll be coming back to all of this and revisiting it again. But I want to remind you this morning that the reason Jesus had to come was because our sin demanded a sacrifice. And just as the Old Testament system 
was a way for us to, to lay our sins upon a lamb and have the, the blood of that innocent lamb, that animal, killed, and then the blood being sprinkled all over the altar and, and over the mercy seat of God to atone for the sins of the people so that we could have a relationship with God. The book of Hebrews points us to the fact that when that happened, it was only temporary. Because when that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, on behalf of me, on behalf of you, if we were there living through that process, that literally within minutes, you know, we could go out and sin. And now there's a whole other year before the Day of Atonement comes again. And so the book of Hebrews talks about that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It could only temporarily cover it. Have you ever had a stain on a garment? Or maybe, you know, this has happened to me, you know, in your house, maybe something happened. You got, you know, a stain on a wall, a piece of wood that has a knot on it, and you paint it, but that knot keeps bleeding through, or that stain keeps bleeding through, and then you go out and you get some kills, some kind of stain killer, and you keep painting it, and yet it keeps coming through. That's a great picture of our sin. You can try to cover it, you can try to whitewash it, but it, it just keeps coming back. But what was the solution? What was the answer for man's sin? It's, it's a stain killer that would never allow something to bleed through again. And it was the blood of Christ. Everything that Jesus did was pointing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it was pointing to the fact that while that was there to really show us our sin, it couldn't fully atone for our sin. So God had to send his one and only son And it was the blood of his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That blood alone could atone for the sin of mankind. And so that is what is happening here. As we go through this day where Jesus is being led to the cross and crucified, the innocent lamb of God, whose blood takes away the sin of the world, he is being led to the cross for my sin and for your sin. And because of what Jesus did, we can have a relationship with God. That's the whole point of all of this. That Jesus makes the way, he makes the path so that we can have that relationship. The blood of Christ takes away our shame. Forgiveness takes away our guilt. And we can live shame-free, guilt-free. We can live forgiven. Because of the blood of Jesus. All of this stuff that we're reading is stuff that Jesus had to go through so that you and I could have a relationship with God the Father. So they found this man, Simon of Cyrene. Jesus was so beat up and so weak and had lost so much blood that he was weak. Now, what does it mean when it talks about having him bearing his cross? Uh, as you have probably seen in, in movies or pictures, there's uh, these men, you know, men were crucified. They were, they were put on the cross. They were nailed to a cross. But what happened is, is the place where the crucifixion took place, there would be the, the vertical piece of the cross like we see here behind us. That's already there, and it's a big, long, tall piece. But in order to get the prisoner up on the cross, that cross beam, which is called the patibulum, Uh, They had to bear that themselves. They had to carry that from where they were convicted to the place where they were going to be nailed to that cross. And so Jesus now has got to carry this at least 100 pounds, maybe more, patibulum, this big cross beam, out to Golgotha. And if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, please go, just go and see it for yourself. Walk what is called the Via Dolorosa, which is sort of the Catholic name for the the path that Jesus took to get to the cross. And they end inside the city, but we know Jesus was crucified outside the city. So as you go and you walk that trail and you go out the north gate, the Damascus gate, to the place called Golgotha, just north of the city, you see this, this all comes alive in your mind. And Jesus being so weak, They basically had to help him walk or drag him to the cross. And so they had to compel this man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry that cross beam, the patibulum. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, 
There's just so many scriptures here. I believe this one comes out of Psalm 69, where it talks about the Messiah being given uh, sour wine on a sponge to drink from. And it's not something you would drink. It would be like drinking something you know is spoiled because it's the only thing there is to drink. You would never drink this. And yet they are giving it to the Messiah. And it certainly symbolizes at least the bitterness of sin. And when they crucified him, verse 35, and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots in verse 35. And of course, that comes from Psalm 22. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, the other Gospels give us different and and greater depth on the details of what happened with Jesus. But I wanted to sort of make you aware of this morning, as I was reading this and studying this and preparing, I just had this strong sense in my own heart that while I love to exposit the Scriptures and teach them to you verse by verse, that there is something powerful in reading what happened to Jesus on that day, truly, what can we add to the Word of God in the sense of explanation that's going to help us understand what happened here? Countless people have read the accounts of the Gospels of what happened to Jesus, and their hearts have been convicted. They have been turned to Christ. And so that's why we're spending a lot of time reading this morning. So they put Jesus on the cross, and they put this little plaque, this little sign to mock him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by (coughs) blasphemed him, wagging their heads. So you can just get the sense of the mockery going on here as Jesus is being crucified and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. And we know that Jesus could have done that, couldn't he? Didn't he just say in the garden the night before as they came with all of those people to to come and take him away, 600 soldiers? Jesus said, man, I I could call 12 legions of angels. Certainly Jesus could have come down from the cross. Not only could he have come down from the cross, he could have come down from the cross in a totally healed fashion with all of his wounds healed and no blood and no bruises. I mean, he could have done that. But would that have convinced anyone that he was the Messiah? They would have been amazed. But would they have been convinced in their heart to the point of turning from their sin and repenting and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ? Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders, they said, he saved others, ha ha, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Okay, Jesus, if you do this, then we'll believe you. You ever heard people say that? If you do this, Lord, then I'll believe. Didn't that happen in Luke chapter 16 when the story of Lazarus and the rich man Lazarus, the poor man living outside the gate, full of sores, poor, begging scraps from the table, while every day the man inside the gate fared sumptuously, had a luxurious life. Now you fast forward in in Luke 16 to the parable that Jesus tells us, and now you have the rich man on the other side in hell, and you have uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom on the side of heaven, and you have this interaction going forth, back and forth, and the, the Rich man says, can't you send someone back to tell my family? You know, they'll believe if you send someone back. That miracle of sending someone back from the dead, whom they know was dead because they went to his funeral, send that person back and then they'll believe. And, And he said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have sufficient testimony. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not gonna believe a sign should a dead person come back. And here these scribes, these Pharisees, these, these people doing the same thing, huh? You know, we'll believe if he 
saved himself if he would come down off of the cross. And listen to how far the mockery of faith goes. And this is the voice of accusation, isn't it, in verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him, that is God, now uh, deliver, let him deliver him now, that is God deliver Jesus, if he will have him, if God will have him. For he, Jesus, said, I am the Son of God. You know, this man claims to be the Son of God, which in their minds meant he claimed to be God. He claimed to be deity. If you're really God, haha, we know you're not, then save yourself. Come down from the cross. And even the robbers who were crucified, who were going through the same excruciating pain that he was going through, they reviled him with the same thing. They also mocked the Lord. Now, Matthew takes us through some of the process. Again, the other Gospels give us a more complete view. Verse 45, now the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. Why was that? What was happening? We believe that what was happening is that God is now ominously beginning to pour out the wrath of the sin of the world. Think about that. The sin of the world from time past to time future. You know, it's it's staggering to think there's something north of, what, 8 billion people on the planet today? But how many people have ever lived? And how many more people will live until the time in the book of Revelation when the consummation of all things comes to be? The sin of all those people is being laid upon the Son of God. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, so... During the day, the hours were counted, you know, 6 a.m. would be the first hour, etc. So about the ninth hour would be about 3 p.m. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, several hundred years before the crucifixion in Psalm 22, and I would like for you to turn there for a couple of moments. In Psalm 22... David, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was given these words by the Spirit of God about a form of torture and punishment that had not yet been invented. It would later be invented by the Romans, and that form of torture and punishment is called crucifixion. So turn with me to Psalm 22, and I just want to read down to verse 19. We could read the whole thing, but this gives you a sense of what Jesus was going through. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see Jesus quoting these words from David. Now you have to think, I mean, just think for a moment. Now you're David, you know, you know God's giving you things to write down and you're writing them down. I mean, there's something happening. And it's as if God is giving him dictation over something that he didn't understand because so often when David was given words by the Spirit of God, a lot of times they were an understanding to things he was experiencing. David had never experienced anything like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. That's what was happening, right, at the foot of the cross. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. This is what's happening, right? Saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Even the scribes and the Pharisees in their mocking are actually speaking scripture back to the Messiah as he hangs on the cross. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. That's what happened when these guys put a bag over his head and spit on him and punched him and beat him. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. This is the process of crucifixion. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is a dried piece of clay pot. And my tongue clings to my jaws. I'm dehydrated. You have brought me to the dust of death. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die any moment. I can see it. I can feel it. I can taste it. My, uh, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They've crucified me. I can count all my bones. Not only is he dehydrated, he's malnourished. They look at me. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. And again, we could go on. The psalm goes on. Verse 47, some of those who stood there When they heard that, what Jesus said, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come. That'd be cool, right? This is like reality TV being played out right in front of us. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice it doesn't say that he died. It says that he yielded up his spirit. Now, when we read the gospel of John, Jesus was very clear. He says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I mean, that is powerful. That is love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You see, when we come to Christ, when we get saved, we become the friends of Jesus. He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. It's not just globally that Jesus died for the sin of mankind. It's personal. You see, he wants to be your friend. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And that was only possible by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus cried out, he yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Why does that matter? What's, that, what's, what's the veil in the temple being torn in two all about? Well, if we were to put up here a diagram of the temple and how it was laid out... You come in the front door, as it were, and as you entered, there were implements all around. There was the table of showbread, and there was the menorah, the the light, the candlesticks, which uh, brought the light of God. There was the oil filling the candelabra, which was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Um, And then there was a big, thick curtain, and behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, probably all of you have seen... uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And if you've seen that, actually it's a pretty good likeness of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, as the angel's wings have spread over the middle and the tips are touching, that little center area is called the mercy seat. And that's where the priest would go each year, that one day of the year, Yom Kippur, and as he would go in, he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, onto the mercy seat to so that God would look down from heaven and instead of seeing the things that reminded him of the rebellion and the sin of the people, uh, the budded rod of Aaron where man rebelled against God, the broken tablets of Moses that had the law of God, that remember he threw them down because as he came down the mountain, there's this freakish orgy thing going on at the base of the mountain. He's up on the mountain communing with God and there's this heinous sin thing going on at the base of the mountain and he throws the, the tablets down. And so the broken law, the broken word of God, and then the little bowl of manna that as the people in the wilderness were being provided by God. Remember, we read this this morning in the psalm. I mean, that we didn't plan this. It just happened. And it says there that they ate of angels' food. And yet they complained bitterly and said, God, this is terrible. We're tired of eating angel food every day. 
Come on, man. Can we have something else? What about some meat? What about some barbecue? And all those things were in there, and God would look down and see those things that would remind him of our sin, of our complaining. Anybody complained in the last 24 months about coronavirus? Okay, complaining is sin. And sin brings the judgment of God. And when the blood of the innocent Lamb of God is sprinkled on the mercy seat, guess what God sees? He says it to us in the the prophecy of Isaiah. He says when he looks down, he sees the blood and he says their sins and their lawless deeds I I no longer see. The blood was an atonement. Atonement means covering. And the blood of Jesus became our covering. And that's why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was the perfect high priest. You see, not only was he the Lamb of God, he is the high priest of God. He took his own blood, as it were, into the holy temple of God, and he sprinkled his blood on that mercy seat that became the eternal blood of the covenant. That's why when we take communion, take this cup, this is the cup of the the new covenant in my name. This is for you to remember me and to remember that your sin is covered by the blood. The veil in the temple was torn in too because you see the priest was the only one who could go in once a year. The veil is torn in too. That veil was an 18 inch thick tapestry that has been cut into by as it were, I like to think of it this way, that the hand of God like a knife slices down that veil, spreads it open. And what does that mean? That means we, don't, we no longer need to come by a priest to God. We come by the blood of Christ. And each one of us approaches the throne of God, not through the agency of a priesthood, but through the agency of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point. And so when this veil was rent, when it was torn in two, from top to bottom, the earthquake, the rocks were split, something happened. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when Jesus was resurrected on resurrection morning... Other people were resurrected, and it was crazy. I mean, they must have come back, and they went, wow, here's Luke 16 happening. People are coming back saying, listen, you won't believe what happened. We were dead, and all of a sudden, some, some voice told us to get up and go back into the city and be with your family. Now, it was a bummer they had to die again, but they were resurrected, and these were signs of what God had done. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were some people who had faith who could see this was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, James and John, and the mother, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons. So they saw these things. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. The other gospels tell us that, of course, he said, you guys go out and make sure this guy's dead. They went out and broke the legs of the prisoners, but to Jesus they saw he was already dead and they didn't have to touch him, fulfilling prophecy that the Lamb of God would be spotless and unblemished and not a bone would be broken. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. This is why you should go to Jerusalem. Because when you walk out the north gate, the Damascus gate, you don't see it today because the the Arabs blew a hole in the side of the mountain and, and blew away the face that was there, but you can see this on the internet if you just Google the face of Golgotha. And right up above that face is the hill called Golgotha, and that's where Jesus was crucified. So they went out there, and uh, at at the base of the, the hill, and it's a pretty tall hill where the crosses were, where Jesus was crucified, then there's the face called Golgotha that looks like a, a skull face. And then down just below that to the left is the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's right there. You can see it. And he uh, asked for the body. He took it. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. 
And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So they saw these things happen. They saw Jesus taken down. They saw him put in the tomb. And they saw that tomb sealed. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, this would have been Friday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say uh, to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So not only is the big stone rolled in, in front of it, but now you've got guards there, armed guards And these trained Roman soldiers would really be the akin of what we might think of Navy SEALs today. I mean, these were highly trained military guards. So they were put there to guard this tomb to prevent any foul play from happening. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, as we close today, I'd like to read to you from a passage. Listen to this out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We'll get to that next week in chapter 28. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, continuation of that passage, for he made him, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him that is in Christ. If you want one sentence to sum it up, that's it. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Everything we just read in chapter 27 is God's love letter to you. He did it for you. The nails didn't hold him to the cross. His love held him to the cross. He did this for us. Let's not let the story of the gospel become worn out and old and cold and familiar. You see, folks, this is our hope. Because of what Jesus allowed himself to be subjected to, He's our hope. You see, one day we will be in heaven before God with him. We will stand before God on the basis of the completed, finished, blood-bought work of Jesus Christ. No other reason. You will not be there because you were a good find. You will not be there because you were a little bit better at not sinning as much as your neighbor. You will be there for one reason only, because you are under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Take that to heart. Meditate on that. Think about that. Give thanks for that. And this morning, listen, if you can listen to this stuff and you don't know Christ, he did this for you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to have that relationship with God the Father. That's why he did it. So come to him. Yield your heart to him. Invite him into your life. Ask him to forgive you. That you might become his son or his daughter. It's that simple. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for touching us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us, Lord. The things that have been spoken here today, simply by reading them from your word, Lord, these things, as the psalmist said, these things are too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to the knowledge of these things. To think that you did it for me. You did it for all of us. God, thank you so much for what you've done. Lord, your word tells us that we can say the words, I love you, God. Because you first loved us. And what we've we've just seen and read has been demonstrated to us. 
Uh, Romans tells us, chapter 5, but the love of God has been demonstrated to us and that while we were yet sinners, we were still sinning. We were lost. Christ died for us. There is nothing worthy. We can never be worthy. The only thing worthy is you, Jesus. Salvation is of God. And so we thank you, Lord, this morning that we are here by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.